Hello everyone, Matt here, and as we get ready to rerun our episode one podcast here, what a little journey this file has been on. Originally, we recorded this as an early exclusive for our Patreon at patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, and going back, looking for that file, uh, I see it was recorded in January 2020. At the time, our plan was do some some Star Wars movie uh, discussions on Patreon, eventually moved over to the Pop Culture Podcast feed. Obviously, after January 2020, things went a little different. Things obviously took a turn, and uh, we never picked up that baton again. So glad to be taking this discussion that was always intended to eventually end up on the Pop Culture Podcast feed. Didn't quite know that it would take until the end of 2022 to get there, uh, but as we kick off what will be a run for the uh, the prequel trilogy, then the original trilogy. Uh, here now is our discussion for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Yeah, so I mean, I want to start this one off with even before The Phantom Menace had hit screens in May of 1999, there was this tremendous buildup, the longest gap we've ever gone between films, 16 years from May of 1983 to May of 1999. But in 1998, November, uh, all this rumbling, you know, we had had rumors and a couple still images here and there, but suddenly there was a trailer coming, but there was a catch. Ooh, what was the catch? So the catch was, and in these, you know, early, early days of commercial internet, you know, we were about, five years, six years at most into that. Uh, the idea that they were going to just dump it online at a certain date and certain time was not the case. You had to actually go to a movie theater and it had to be one of the movie theaters that received the trailer. So it became public that there were going to be certain films that would carry it and you know, true old timey trailer style. It would run both before the film and after the film. So I forget exactly how I found out where I was going to go. I knew that I didn't want to sit through, you know, two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes of meet Joe Black, a film I'd already seen. So the water boy popped up as one of the films and I ventured all the way to East Brunswick, which is about 45 miles from where we are at the Jersey shore to see the water boy. And, uh, Let's put it this way, Matt. The trailer was such a blast of nostalgia, and you, you got it the first time. I had no choice but to stay in my seat and endure Adam Sandler's The Waterboy uh, to get another glimpse at the trailer after the film. Well, I have a little bit of, so, uh, of a soft spot for The Waterboy. I don't know how it's aged. Uh, I know. And, what's that? Terribly. <laughs> Fair enough. My recollection of experiencing the trailer, at least for the first time, is a little bit different. I know at some point uh, it was going to be on TV, and it was like one of these things, at least initially, where it was like, tonight on Entertainment Tonight, we have the exclusive preview. Uh, so I, I remember uh, having the VCR set, and I think certainly by the time that evening ended, Everybody had access to it. You know, every news thing, every, you know, everybody in the world was playing it. So the press was through the roof. I definitely remember recording it. 
uh, showing it to family members, bringing it to the next, I guess, what, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, the next big family get together. We're all, we're around the TV watching it and an excellent trailer in its own right, particularly as its goal was to relaunch Star Wars. And this pent up demand for it, they, they could have shown anything in that first trailer, um, but really beginning a theme that, ended with the trailer for the rise of Skywalker, this idea of a saga having a beginning and we're going all the way back to the beginning to continue this saga, the, the clone wars much bandied about in the original films and to go back and, and do the prequel trilogy and to do the origin of, of Darth Vader and everything there, something made possible in 1993 with the realization of realistic CGI to do dinosaurs to the point where Lucas now was saying, all right, uh, industrial light and magic, my effects arm has rendered these real life looking dinosaurs. Now I can do, uh, a digital Chewbacca character that will be completely reviled and really put a bad taste in my mouth is the creator for the final two movies. <laughs> Along the way, too, let's not forget that the uh, the special edition trilogy. <laughs> this, in retrospect, and though though it is partially derided as you know this constant tinkering, particularly with uh, with a new hope, that was a the test bed platform to right. see if some of these ideas could be tested out, and b it was also kind of a of a pre-funding thing, you know, because everything Star Wars was owned by George Lucas except for A New Hope and because he really didn't want to be going uh, to a studio to co-finance as he did for, uh, or to solely finance as he did for, for A New Hope or to a bank as he did for the beginning of uh, Empire Strikes Back and then the bank didn't back him and he had to go back to the studio and all that. Uh, this, <laughs> this special edition, an attempt to get people to pay for Star Wars before it came out, it was like this, you know, it was like one of these uh, crowdfunded things just before we knew what that was. Yes, patrons, that's what it was. <laughs> so we're in the theater on that opening day in May, and the logo flashes and the fanfare, and then that backstory, Matt, about taxation and trade federations. Woohoo! Well, I'm not sure which eyes to be looking through as we discuss this, because I think the the many errors of this movie uh, that we can all rightly see now, I don't know that people walked out of the theater in 1999 with those complaints at the forefront. Um, maybe they did. I don't know. So that's kind of like there, there's the initial viewing or 1999 viewing. Then there's kind of the repeat viewing thing. And then as we get deeper into some of this world of politics, hey, we have somebody completely ill-suited to run for the high office, puts together this plan to make everybody ignore the fact that he's ascending higher and higher and higher because people don't think it could possibly be a problem. It's through that third set of eyes that I think we can view this movie and indeed the prequel trilogy as well. But ultimately, Pete, let, let's strike for the middle set of eyes here. Yeah, the notion that we are dealing with a trade dispute uh, and we are blaming uh, we're we're blaming the the 
trade people, the bankers, people like that is a weird starting point. It is. Uh, I will be upfront. I was a big fan of this film. I remain a fan of it definitely more than what we will talk about next month. The low point, I would argue, of the saga in Attack of the Clones. But, you know, this was capitalizing on that vacuum of Star Wars. All we had in the interim, other than what you mentioned of the re-released special editions, uh, were the Zahn novels. And we'll talk a little bit about, you know, just the, the cherry picking that, that went on there, the, the tiniest little bit of it. Um, but this was the heyday and, you know, really, really strong with this film that I think helped to influence early on against some negative reaction is the amount of design and innovation they poured into this film on top of the fact that this was the era that was always talked about in the originals. We have Jedi guardians of peace and justice all over the place, getting Liam Neeson and his gravitas to play a Jedi alongside the man who would be Obi-Wan Kenobi and really, I would argue, a saving grace of the prequels in Ewan McGregor, um, you know, a, a fresh face in Hollywood, somebody who had had a couple hits and train spotting and then boom, lands this epic role, uh, revisiting the role uh, made iconic by Sir Alec Guinness. And, uh, you know, they they show up and, and they're going to be the ones to kind of solve problems, but not really necessarily in the swashbuckling way we all envisioned it. Well, and it's on, uh, it's on Ewan McGregor that, that the entire trilogy rests to a certain degree in that there clearly was the knowledge that what was being asked of him was to be the, to, to be the student Jedi in this. And by the end of it, to be the master, to be, shades of uh of alec guinness uh in you know at the end of the journey which of course would have been six years after release and we're talking probably closer to eight years from the beginning of filming to the beginning of filming of episode one to the release of episode three so kind of really asking of him and certainly to to a, a great degree um natalie portman but it's it's in you and mcgregor that kind of the whole thing rests uh and as you say, Pete, it's it's his kind of youthful energy contrasted by, uh, shall we say, a dense narrative. It is. And, you know, just back to McGregor, the irony here as we're recording in January, January 18th to be exact, and that in the last 36 hours, a fake story has uh, circulated that the Obi-Wan Kenobi show that is going to star Ewan McGregor uh, was canceled and is still on and thank goodness is still on. And when you look back at it, it's his signature role to this point. I mean, could you maybe say the the two train spotting movies because uh, the first one put him on the map? Maybe. I, I think he's known internationally, perhaps galactically, Matt, as Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, yeah, we we put them into this sequence with Nemoidian Trade Federation types and battle droids, which while, you know, innovative at the time 
And we still have, you know, these films get blind as being too much CGI. Like there was no practical stuff. There was practical stuff. I think the CGI just tends to overwhelm the practicality of things. There was no real balance. A lot of the photorealism too, you know, you look at points in the prequel and there are digital elements that are both in focus in the foreground and in focus in the background. They were still really kind of gauging the, the realism of it. Um, you know, but they land in that hangar and there are you know, battle droids and flying battle droids that are walking around and, oh my goodness, there's a silver C-3PO that's going to serve drinks. And, you know, we, we have the new, we, we have the old, and then we have characters with accents that are kind of understandable asking, are you brain dead? Also, I would say accents that maybe slide towards uh, an Asian stereotype that also has not aged great, although I don't think is necessarily completely outside propriety. Um, soon enough, we get uh, presumably Pete, the Phantom Menace, although there is arguments that there might be multiple people uh, to which the moniker of the Phantom Menace might be applied. But I think that that might be digging a tad too deep, given as how uh, we get, uh, we get Lord Sidious appearing in a phantomly, you know, uh, holographic, uh, visage there. I think he's phantom menace enough for me. Uh, and he certainly is revealed as the ultimate puppet master here. Yeah. And, you know, he, he refers to one of the lackeys as a stunted slime. There's, there's hardcore characterization from the moment that we get him. And if we're going to say Ewan McGregor is the saving grace of the prequels, boy, is Ian McDiarmid, uh, you know, the uh, behind the scenes MVP, because without his portrayal of Palpatine, Sidious, and, you know, we're, we're saying that this is Sidious here, the guessing game at the end of this film that continued into Attack of the Clones given that the film was called Attack of the Clones, we never saw Palpatine and Sidious in the same place. We never saw uh, Palpatine put on a hood. Uh, there were schools of thought, much like with the Darth Vader, I am your father reveal in Empire Strikes Back. It had been done in the books. Are these two separate characters? Is one a clone? Um, you know, there, there was some intrigue to that at a time when there still could be. And I believe, as I recall, uh, at least in the, uh, in, in the theatrical credits, I don't know if it's been updated since then, but I think that if, if you were sitting in the theaters in 1999, maybe even still today, I don't know that Sidious gets a screen credit. It's just Ian McDiarmid, Senator Palpatine. So there is that point being, there's enough kind of, there's enough juice there, certainly in 1999 to have, to have a question and then you layer in the fact that you know your home video release isn't going to be digital people aren't going to be doing screen caps and sharing them on the internet and going look here's the ratio of uh eye to mouth measurement look it is the same guy and stuff that you might get today on your reddits or on your your deep dive youtubes it was just kind of like i think that's the same guy but it might not be but i think it's the same you know like there's enough debate there where it is kind of the the olden days of your 1999 where who knows, maybe it isn't. It's amazing to think it's 20 years, 21, uh, at this point, 21 may, 
Um, but you know, then we have another strong element of design here. These, uh, destroyer droids, the droidicas show up, you know, kind of crab like, but they roll and everything there. And amid that and the Jedi doing their thing early on, we have kind of this, you know, feeling of slapstick. There's the guy's in the trade federation alien suits again the nemoidians and it, it just feels like it's a little bit off yeah i mean we can go into lucas now a father and a bit more perhaps a bit more aware in the making of this that's squarely for kids however there's the lucas quote from i believe around the original trilogy you know hey this is a movie for kids um I can't help but mention too, Pete, while we are pausing just to reflect on the all creator here. Um, if one of the slams against the sequel trilogy is you didn't have a master plan the entire time. Well, here for the prequel trilogy, he had a master plan all the time. If one of the complaints about the sequel trilogy is there wasn't that overarching uh, lone author vision. Well, we have that here in the in the the prequel trilogy and you know any of the failures of the prequel trilogy land at the feet of of george lucas so you kind of you can't have it both ways where the fault of the one is that you don't have the voice of the other meanwhile there are problems with this trilogy certainly it's unmistakable that it soured him on star wars on storytelling on hollywood um, that his last directorial credit was in 2005, that he did all three of the prequels, really kind of burned him out. And uh, it's sad. I mean, an anecdote I'll interject here. So um, we got married, my wife and I got married um, in late December of 2000. And then we honeymooned in uh, Walt Disney World and then a couple days on the cruise. And we go to breakfast one morning in, uh, uh, I think it's called 1600 Park Fair. It's the, um, it's the buffet restaurant in the Grand Floridian where we were staying. And my wife happens to sit at the further chair and I sit uh, across from her. And eight feet away from me is a bearded gentleman wearing flannel. So it's, it's early January, 2001 in the magic kingdom. Um, it is about 40 degrees because January and, uh, my wife had been wearing mittens at the, uh, parade in the magic kingdom the night before. And there is a dude that looks just like George Lucas and he is sitting with a male child and he is sitting with a teenage child, uh, a female. And I'm like, I think this is George Lucas. But it could also be that thing that happens when you see somebody who looks like somebody and it's, it's not them. And having been a sports writer at the time, that was frequently the case. You would go into the Yankees clubhouse and, you know, uh, somebody with their uniform off and without a number to identify them can look like a lot of other people. Um, and you know, you gotta be careful sometimes. All right. Oh, he's standing in front of the locker that has his number and that's him. Okay. That's the guy I'm looking for, whatever it might be. So I say to my wife, 
I'm pretty sure that's George Lucas and she knows the the Star Wars maniac that I am. Um, and she, she doesn't even, uh, you know, uh, stop what she's doing, having uh, breakfast here. She's a, she's a breakfast uh, girl. Uh, breakfast is to her what Star Wars is to me. And she says, well, you better do something about it. And I just could not bring myself to interrupt George Lucas, if it was indeed him, after the tough year he had had in 1999, he was in the process of making Attack of the Clones. And if anything, I would have just gone up to him and said, hey, just want to shake your hand. Just want to thank you. This was before cell phones to take a selfie or anything like that. And I let him go and he walked an elbow's length away from me. And the waitress came up and I said, that was George Lucas, wasn't it? And she said, yes, it is. He's been here every morning. Today is his last day in the hotel. He's leaving. He's been so great. And I'm like, of course it was. And she said, I I don't even know whether this is allowed. She said, would you like to see his signature on the guest check? And she showed me that because that's as close as evidently I'm ever going to get. And looking at it back through the eyes of today and he's, you know, just been pictured in the last two, three days. Uh, John Favreau shared a, uh, a photo on Instagram of, um, George Lucas holding the prop, uh, the puppet of the child of baby Yoda as it's, uh, come to be known. And I can't help but see the same body language in him. He was kind of slouched. There was just this, this defeated demeanor to him. And I don't know. I, I think he had a little bit, maybe it goes with age, but he, he, he had more spunk and fire with those original films. And it's never been the same after attack of the clones. And I think a lot of that comes back to Jar Jar and some of these less successful, I mean, Jar Jar gets scapegoated as, you know, the, the biggest shortcoming. Uh, there's some alternate universe out there, Matt, where, where Jar Jar is the next Chewbacca BB eight, whatever it is. And, and kids dress as Jar Jar for Halloween instead of, you know, John Favreau writing in a Gungan joke in the Mandalorian. I know, I mean, probably in the early two thousands, maybe the late 1990s, there was a bit at the Oscars where it was, uh, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg. And it was like, well, you know, it's these, these three guys that came up together and they're, I'm an Oscar winner. I'm an Oscar winner. And George Lucas says, well, I haven't won an Oscar. And, you know, played for laughs, blah, blah, blah. One does think, you know, this this man in George Lucas, who when his short film, the short film version of THX 1138 uh, was first screened uh, somewhere in California. I don't remember whether it was at a, a film festival or at a, uh, a film uh, film school showing. People thought that it was a ringer. People thought that a pro had snuck something in there uh, amidst all their they're really amateur stuff and then to make thx 1138 which not enough people have seen it it's a great movie you know for what it is as a dystopian early 70s thing uh i think the special it's special edition actually is a good 
good use of that kind of special edition tool. Uh, and it's avant-garde. And I think, you know, there's similar types of innovations, obviously, 25 years on in this film. At the same time, trying to be a little bit more to what Star Wars originally tried to be, you know. So we get introduced to Queen Amidala around this time in the film and she's got the kabuki makeup and this is something that could never have happened in the original films and it's through a a flash gordon mirror wall that that turns into something that that is a a good use of effect and restraint and everything like that and i mean great time now to to turn attention to natalie portman uh the notion that she was uh 16 17 when starting to film this movie that just blows my mind for a, a couple reasons the first and foremost being uh in that first introduction of queen amandala certainly you can see her youth to a certain degree but you know the lower voice this fantastic i mean this iconic ageless outfit that she wears um and the mystery to her you kind of buy the notion of her as a queen of any age uh again i'm not trying to suggest that it's unclear that she's on the younger side but just the authority is so clear there and to think you know this is somebody who her first movie uh leon the professional i know i saw on tape probably 1995 a year after it had had been released in theaters um Pete, I'm having a little trouble reconciling in my own memory if I saw The Professional in 1995 and she was cast for Star Wars two or three years after that. And by 1999, here we're watching this. That was not my kind of conception of it all, particularly. I remember seeing her in uh, in uh, Everyone Says I Love You, the, uh, the Woody Allen musical. Um, again, my point being, it's somebody, I don't want to say who I grew up with because just 1994 to 1999 but somebody who certainly i was aware of and here she is on screen as this you know as this amazing character slow down for a second character yes performance no and i think that's another element where lucas's direction i mean if we're going to give him credit for casting ewan mcgregor and the great performance the spine of these prequels he gets out of him and ian mcdermott we have to wonder if faster and more intense was ever even uttered in natalie portman's direction because and you you mentioned the the voice modulation and you know there, there are differences between the trailer and the the pace and pitch at which she speaks and then how it comes across. And then there's the fact that sometimes the character is played by Kira Knightley and the decoy handmaidens and everything there. But she largely sleepwalks through these three films. Somebody who is a mega talent. This is an actress director who's done far better work. And I, I think my anticipation of her in this role as the future mother of Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia fell uh, short. Perhaps in retrospect, again, it's, it's, it's back to this issue of through what eyes are we viewing her? I mean, able resume before this, uh, it's maybe only after um, towards the tail end of the Star Wars trilogy and after 
where you realize the range that she has. I'm talking about Closer, V for Vendetta, the other Boleyn girl, Black Swan. Black you know, the Swan, Oscar man. Like, holy moly. And to think now, granted, you know, she's she's not going to go to those links in these films. But and, and part of it is the writing. And when we get to Revenge of the Sith, just wait. <laughs> You know, or even I mean, look, I'm I'm uh, what I'm 23, 22 when uh, when uh, Attack of the Clones come comes out. Natalie Portman's a pretty lady. Even then, the scene in Attack of the Clones where, oh, no, you know, I'm talking about the big the big fight at the end. Uh, Oh, no, something has torn my shirt. Now I'm in a now Uh, my midriff is exposed. The next two beast. Yeah. Yeah, and, And it was just like. Okay, I, I I appreciate it, but did we need to go from here I am in you know space clothes to oh oh no less space clothes? <laughs> it comes back to, it comes back comes back to George Lucas. It's it's we're both talking about the same point from different ends here. Somebody who would go on less than five years after her last Star Wars movie would win an Academy Award for 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 Best Actress. We're not seeing that asked of her here albeit her at a slightly younger age, but not, not, I would argue much less talent. I mean, she'd been working since she yeah. was 12. And so I, at this point she's a, she's an old pro. I, I, I think you, you do have to treat it with, you know, a, a softer edge given her age, given the importance of this production, the pressure. I mean, there were all sorts of rumors that circulated Matt prior to that trailer that there had been, uh, tell me if you've ever heard of this one. There, there was a persistent and pervasive rumor that um, they had gotten uh, some of the footage corrupted. It was blurred. And Rick McCallum, all right, um, George Lucas's producer and major domo throughout these uh, prequels, uh, you know, had discovered this and they were doing everything they could to to keep it quiet, but it was going to push the deadline back and, you know, it wasn't going to happen. It was going to be this major embarrassment. And, and thankfully, none of it was true. But, you know, there was so much riding on this film and monetarily it was a tremendous success. And I think that proves the thesis that Disney's learned with the sequels to put out five films in four years and have the solo debacle, a film I really, really enjoyed. Uh, The only uh, dud monetarily of those five films and all the confusion that happened releasing it uh, within six months of The Last Jedi. Star Wars benefits from a drought. And that we're, you know, halfway through January and we've still not heard yet what the next film is going to be in 2022 and who might direct it. And there are now rumors circulating about Taika Waititi, obviously, on the strength of uh, uh, Oscar nomination for Jojo Rabbit and with his success with The Mandalorian and IG-11 as a character and everything there. Um but there was just such pressure on these films, arguably more pressure, I, I think, like, you know, time with a diamond than Disney faced with the sequels. I guess it's it's difficult to know exactly. Uh, bottom line is to return to my point from earlier in terms of if there is a secret sauce to Star Wars and it's not different authors 
no grand plan, but it also is not single author grand plan. I mean, I guess you could argue, all right, the fault of the prequel trilogy, it, it's not the structure of single author grand plan. It was George Lucas's plan. And, and, you know, the fact that there was no one around to tell him he ever had a bad idea, uh, that, that being first and foremost, Rick McCallum, the, the bootlicker. Um, but I don't know, you can't have it both ways. Uh, but Pete bringing it back squarely to the Phantom Menace, having it both ways is the new world of Naboo, uh, a, a, a land of sea creatures who are funny clowns and, uh, humans, uh, existing in uh, a version of Italy. Yeah. They filmed at Caserta palace in, in, uh, Italy and, between the again they use the practical and the digital and all the design that went into it it's 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 lush doug chang did outstanding um design work here and you know this new world senator palpatine being from naboo so bringing that together uh you know the mix of the the old world the the brick and you know, the marble and everything, and then the gleaming silver starships and all of that. And it's invaded. It's invaded by this mechanical army that uh, this amphibious alien that there were greater plans for in this trilogy, but just became so reviled. And, you know, Lucas took an enormous risk, as big as the risks he took, you know, in the original films with, Wookiees and Ewoks and droids and everything else. And it just didn't pan out. But like you said before with McCallum, nobody told him no. So excuse me if the slapstick was a little too much with Jar Jar Binks. And I mean, at least from my memory back there in 1999, I don't know seeing this movie for the first time, or I probably saw it. I know I saw it at least twice in theaters, probably three, maybe even four times. Twice the first day. <laughs> wow. I saw um, like a 9 a.m. show, and then we went again. My wife said to me, my fiance at the time, she's like, we got to go see that again. And she's not even a big fan. I'm like, oh, you don't got to twist my arm. Let's go back and see it. Which I think that's a view that a lot of people had. So I don't know... Again, I think that this this movie, in a certain sense, is kind of ground zero for the state of fandom right now in terms of hot takes. And I mean, a lot of the, a lot of this is clearly, by and large, pre-internet. I mean, uh, you know, it comes out of a time where there's decent internet penetration in the United States, but it certainly is not, you know, whatever the number is now. That's that's about as high as it's going to get. Um, but I think. And certainly, too, Star Wars films before this, we've talked in the past about how, you know, uh, the, the New York Times had a very lukewarm review in 1980 of Empire Strikes Back and and whatnot. But in terms of this is the movie where, you know, this is the movie with Jar Jar at the very, very center where there's all these sins that we recognize now. But I don't know that, Pete, I don't know you walked out at uh, 1130 AM saying, sure thing. Let's go see it again. Oh, I wish we didn't have to see more of that Jar Jar. Everybody was just glad for the spectacle of it all. Um, I mean, uh, Pete, I'll tip my hand to the next star Wars podcast that we'll do 
I spent much of my early 20s believing that Attack of the Clones was not only the best movie out of the three, um, or maybe, yeah, certainly best movie of the three prior to episode three. And then that, I think we can all agree, well, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, but loving Attack of the Clones, even saying Attack of the Clones may be, of the, of the six that were out, uh, may be tied for second place right after Empire Strikes Back. You know, so there's this thing that happens, I think, A, when you as you age as we all do yeah. but also i think as the fandom ages and at a certain point you go that clown was funny the first time now if i want to sit and have a nostalgia buzz now the clown is just annoying agreed and you know i convinced myself that i liked attack of the clones at the time and and there are good things within it you know and i'm on record saying i will take a bad star wars movie over a lot of other good movies um but here with the the Gungans, and again that innovation. Okay, we've got the man in the motion capture suit. Ahmad Best was on uh, set as well. You know, wearing the the eyes above his head, so characters actors would look at his line of sight. And there, there's a lot of good there. It just doesn't translate to the screen. And they were in big doo doo this time. Well, I'll correct you slightly, Pete. So old is this movie that wasn't even a motion capture suit. That was just an onset right, suit where right. the thinking was maybe we'll just need to replace the head or something. A lot of it ended up being complete, uh, complete uh, removal of him and, and digital replication. It, it is kind of amazing. I, I keep looking at this Wikipedia page, Pete, the fact that they started filming in 1997. It's like the first Lord of the Rings movie 2001 had Gollum, but that wasn't even motion capture yet. You know, you had to wait till 2002 for that. And this is kind of so, even earlier when you said uh, the rumor of corrupted footage, I'm saying, wait, they didn't shoot digital? And I, I know Lord of the Rings, they were lent digital cameras at one point. I'm looking through as you're talking. This was the last Star Wars movie shot on film, but every there bit of it shot on film. Some digital scenes. I yes. remember that being a thing at the time. They shot a couple digitally. Again, it, th no one can argue these films have always been innovative in one way, shape, or form. Um, but here, the, the risk outweighed the reward, and almost every negative take pointed at Jar Jar and this unsuccessful experiment the story proceeds from uh the the gungan underwater uh sparse i mean interestingly designed but kind of sparsely presented uh community like it's all walkways and glass viewing and no like you know places for people to be but i digress they come across ocean monsters there's the one and the other bigger fish saves them leading pete to the iconic line it's always a bigger fish uh and eventually get to the capital on naboo and i think if if a lot of well-earned uh, city matt just just so i can show my star wars geek card absolutely if if a lot of uh well-earned angst is spilled towards jar jar maybe some of it is deflected because when we get after the the escape from the capital city and the big shiny ship and a whole bunch of R2 units doing things. And then look, one has saved the day. Come forth. Your designation <laughs> is R2 D2. That's, that's maybe a moment that people didn't 
want to admit that they cringed at because it's the first of many, hey, it's a super small universe because George Lucas says so kind of moments. But I didn't cringe at it, and I still don't cringe at that. That works. And, you know, it's soon after that they were introduced to Darth Maul for the first time. And from the moment we saw his visage in the trailer, okay, this was the next Darth Vader. And I don't think anybody can look back at this film and say, boy, I really wish they'd used him more. And of course they, you know, spoiler alert, in case you've not seen the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, they resurrect him. They wisely resurrect him. He's in Solo. Uh, all sorts of rumors flying around that'll either show up on the Kenobi show. Not quite sure how they're going to do that, given that, you know, Rebels kind of ended things for him. But um, that he may get a show of his own, whatever it might be. Super popular character. Too much Jar Jar. Not a Darth Maul. Again, Matt, there's an alternate universe out there where, you know, all the Jar Jar time gets lavished in the direction of ray parks breakout character i would argue that if there's the right amount of darth maul in that it's the old showbiz adage of leave him wanting more it's not a case that more was needed i mean he is the shark from jaws it Mm. is that it is that notion of all right i'm sending out this guy and he looks scary and he is scary and he's he's silent he's determined uh whenever he shows up there's a dust up um I'll I'll mention now for fear of forgetting later, uh, as I'm sure you know, Pete, uh, when critics first saw the movie, they were sure he'd be back because all he did was fall off the platform. And then in full release of the film, that's when it's shown he was cut in half. Um, So so I guess even then, the ambiguity of his fate, uh, one that's in a certain sense baked into the character. Um, It's also around this time where uh, we really get we kind of get to the forefront Padme as handmaiden. And I think, I don't know, Pete, I I don't remember the first time I saw this, what confusion there might have been about, but wait, that looks like the girl from the professional who's now Padme, but she was just in the same thing as the queen, whatever confusion there might be surely is intentional because it gets explained Mm -hmm. by the end of the movie. But I don't know. How was it for you? Did you have a moment where you were like, but wait, what's going on? Remember who you're talking to, Matt? Spoiler, Pete. Of course I knew that Padme is the actual identity and the real queen. Queen, an elected position um, on the world of Naboo. Uh, but but to throw in that lair, I, I give a lot of credit to develop that intrigue behind the persona of the character. The target of Darth Maul, there to kill her. So no wonder she needs to hide her identity and once they've escaped and we need a place to lay low where better to go than really the uh the the cradle of creation when it comes to star wars tatooine but not moss Eisley. we're gonna go to moss espa and certainly a very uh very wise to story story decision in terms of they need parts so there's kind of that excuse there's the need to lay low. They're they're out in this far flung region, so uh, help is not on the way, which is putting the pressure onto the characters. I think Pete, as they walked into Mos Espa, big 
camera shot. You know, you're seeing all these creatures, all these digital extensions of sets, even Pete Jar Jar stepping in the poodoo, uh, undercutting things perhaps. Uh, and before too long, Pete, the uh, totally uncontroversial Watto appears. What are you talking about, eh? You don't like my character? Uh, Pete, I think some people um, thought that perhaps Watto was uh, was perhaps done in poor taste, uh, perhaps having some some ethnic flair to him. Uh, I, I doubt that was George Lucas's intention. If nothing else, Pete, I can't help but circle back to the notion of sad George Lucas, where I don't think he sat down and said, aha, now I will sharpen my pencil and I will create a character that people will say, is this an anti-Semitic take? He just created a weirdo character and the people who work for him came up with a bunch of different character designs. And George Lucas said, you know, bigger wings, smaller this, you know, have him in this kind of outfit. And what came out on the other end was a really unique character. And then you have people, I don't want to say maligning it. I mean, your take is your take, but you have people saying, hey, George Lucas, you did a bad thing. And he's just like, I tried to make a weirdo alien. Who doesn't like a pot-bellied little wing hummingbird having character with some stubble? Um, Pete, if that didn't make him lovable enough, good news, he owns slaves, and one of which is uh, Anakin Skywalker, so... You know, at this point, we're roughly a third into the movie, give or take, and we're getting maybe not the main character of this movie, but the main character of this trilogy. Matt, I have to correct you here. Welcome back, I, Pete. I, I, I was just going to say, I don't know who was here a couple minutes ago. There's there's dirt everywhere. Um, but uh, his name is Anakin, and he's a person. I also need to know at this time, are you an angel? And if you say yes, I'm going to say um, George Lucas said Star Wars is for kids. Then he put a kid in Star Wars and everything was beloved, I guess. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know about these decisions. Let me this way, Pete. I don't know that Star Wars is for kids. George Lucas might say Star Wars it, is for it, kids. It is. It's, it's for the kid in all of us. But I think there's a difference there. You know, like Pocahontas 2, Journey to the New World, that's for kids. Uh, Star Wars is for the kid in all of us, which is a little bit different. It's a little bit more the monomyth and not, oh man, my actual, my, the actual child of George Lucas is, you know, whatever, 10 or 12 when he's starting to write this. I know he has three kids, uh, you know, so I, I have to make what they would like. Oh, look, they like Barney. Now I will do uh, a Barney, except he flies and uh, talk like this, yeah, that, that, that'll crack him up. So much has been made of the way that Lucas casts the original trilogy, you know, having the uh, the auditions in pairs. And there's a feature length documentary of The Phantom Menace uh, put out on that first uh, DVD uh, videotape. We weren't at a, a DVD release early on, though the technology was there. And they get down to the three candidates for Anakin Skywalker, the eventual Darth Vader. You think about the pressure these eight or nine or 10 year olds are facing at that time, the competition for this role. And Jake Lloyd was clearly the most high profile of them. He had made jingle all the way with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. He had this big credit to his name. He had been in an episode of ER. Um, 
prestige TV at that time, but he is so clearly the wrong choice. And it is, it is effectively ruined his life. Unfortunately, I'm not going to say that he, you know, hasn't made his own bad decisions and he's had, you know, very poor fortune. Um, but there was another kid you go and you watch that audition. I'm sure you can YouTube it, Google it. There's another boy who plays against Portman in the audition and he plays Anakin reading this scene like a young Han Solo and it really worked. And I'm watching it after the film has come out. I own it now on home video and I'm like, why didn't they pick this kid? Why did they go with Jake Lloyd? Was it a looks thing? Was it just because he had this credit? I can't help but wonder why didn't somebody else in this room? I mean, I think we know nobody told Lucas no. And Lucas just had this vision of, of Jake Lloyd as Anakin Skywalker. I remember getting the DVD for this. So it probably would have been what? 2000. Um, no, it was and... later. The, the first really? uh, star Wars film put on DVD was attack of the clones. And then they went back and did episode one, uh, afterward. Really? So I would, the home video would have been tape and yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. Um, I can tell you that because I, I can reveal the secret now. My brother got me Attack of the Clones. My brother was uh, a, a uh, not a full police officer at the time. He was mall security and they got them the DVDs delivered like three days early and he got me one two days early. OK. And I must have worn that disc out in the two early days before anybody else could buy it. And it was just so vibrant on my TV. And I was still in that place where i'd convinced myself that attack of the clones is a film um regardless i know the i've seen that audition footage uh that you uh referred to it's on the disc uh, i remember at the time and albeit you know it's presented as you know there was this thing and it was clear that jake lloyd was the best and they show the footage at the time i felt uh i, I agreed with george lucas that's what one does um, I, I would be interested to go back. I don't even know if that, if all those uh, extras have made it over to, to Disney plus, um, I'm sure I have the, uh, the DVD somewhere. Uh, it would be interesting to see how that, how that has aged as well. By the way, Pete, quick correction. Now George Lucas has four kids at the time he had three. Uh, he since, uh, has had a child with his, uh, current and second wife. Yes. Yes. Um, so you got to give Anakin a, a digital character of his own to play off and the character other than Watto of Sebulba as a foil works pretty well. Um, and, you know, interesting use again of the design and what they did practically on set. Um, but you know, the, the world, the universe just gets a little bit smaller after the introduction of the foe. We meet his mother, Shmi, who I, I don't think people really have complaints about. I, I think that, you know, w was played well in the two films. But, hey, let me show you to my happy hovel. And, oh, my God, I made C-3PO. Yeah. And, again, I think people are happy to see C-3PO and maybe – you watch this the first time you don't quite have the well, certainly of course you wouldn't have the knowledge that he would be he george lucas would be shoehorning in so much origin stuff across these three movies and so much that it's a small it's a small world it's a small galaxy 
you know, again, does some of that like, oh, ha, ha, look, they did that. Oh, that's not that great. Does that anger get pivoted to, to Jar Jar? I don't know. Um, certainly a neat design here. As I recall, Pete, some scenes are puppets. Some scenes are guy in a blue screen suit wearing. And Daniels is there, which which elevates it. We're never mad at C-3PO. I, I think it's it's the universal complaint of those prequels that the universe just got so small, not for me with R2, but that Darth Vader had made C-3PO and they had been so close as a child. And then granted he's a protocol droid and he sees him, you know, he sees models of him. I mean, to me, it's like a model airplane, you know, there's a million model airplane kits out there. You, you make one, although, he makes the one that is the only character that migrates through all nine films of the saga and is in is fluent in all these forms of communication. I mean, it, it just strains credulity as much as we enjoy the character and definitely the performance of Anthony Daniels. And that was the last thing in the movie that ever strained credulity. Pete, let's now talk <laughs> about Virgin Birth, the explanation of the Force, midichlorians, and Star Wars in its way, tackling, uh, tackling what in our world would be, you know, a scientific explanation for God. Your thoughts, Pete? This one works for me, okay? The idea of a chosen one, the idea that the Force would have manifested then they try to have their cake and eat it too. And the introduction of midichlorians, something, you know, hopefully Matt's not bleeped me out here from saying that because we never, ever hear the word again after this film in eight movies. Um, the demystification of the force that they were still trying to recover from uh, all the way to to when the, the sequels would come out. The idea that you would make it, well, there's these little things inside your cells and da-da-da-da. I get where they might want to try to do it, but, you know, you, you have the miracle of Shmi, uh, you know, coming to term with Anakin. There was no father. I delivered him. Uh, I, I carried him. You know, he's he's here. He's special. He's pure. He's talented. He's got this higher than Yoda midichlorian count. Um, yet he's a slave. He's on this backwater planet. Clearly, there are allusions to Christ. Um, but the idea that, uh, you know, you demystify this sacred aspect, this religious quality of the force. And then there's the whole business of, well, who was behind the virgins in the force and something that very recently has been debunked canonically. It was not Palpatine. It was not the emperor because for a very long time, and I believe it was even done in a comic book, not uh, overtly stated, but heavily implied that he manipulated the force to make her pregnant, which made, uh, you know, Anakin effectively, uh, his child, he, uh, creates the chosen one. He manipulates the chosen one. We know how Darth Vader comes to be. And then the resonance in the sequel trilogy. And now with, you know, all of that laid bare, um, but it, it's not the case. He's not responsible for it. 
I like the idea. What what ruins it is the Minicorians. Yeah, I, Anakin as young Christ, and therefore in a mirror image, Darth Vader as a Satan. That all works in this story. The notion that the Force is trying to uh, agitate some sort of balance that works uh to to put a to, to put a measurement on it to put a, a a microscopic creature on it that's the one step too far um and I, I guess i hadn't i hadn't done the tallying that you did pete the fact that midichlorians are not mentioned again there's your proof that it didn't work that you can still continue with this notion by the end of all nine films that there really is this there really is this balance that the force is searching for and it might take these multiple generations but you get to the end of episode nine and apparently where things get get left off at the end now there are no more there are no more jedi in the traditional sense there are no more sith in the traditional sense there is there are force sensitive people out there and they're free to do as they choose that kind of thing not to be put into good guy and bad guy silos uh the fact that the force apparently was yearning for that as opposed to little microscopic creatures were working together to make baby Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that, that one bit of, uh, of a step too far. One area though, that the film, uh, nailed perfectly. It's not a step too far. It was iconic. It was iconic afterwards. It has remained iconic is all the pod racing stuff that remains evergreen <laughs> to this day. Yeah. I mean, though there's more digital characters, it, it seems the more we bring in, the better they work and all the different pod racers. And again, the, the design. And I remember hearing for the first time with the build up to episode one, that there was going to be star Wars's version of the Ben Hur chariot race. And obviously you're, you're just thinking of it in the Ben Hur. Okay. They're going to go around in a circle and there's going to be a bad guy that has things on his wheel. That's going to take out the good guy. And, you know, they so elevate the simple idea. We, we know that Lucas is a, is a motorhead, is a gearhead from, you know, American graffiti and everything there. And it is amongst the most iconic stuff in The Phantom Menace, this, the lightsaber stuff later on, Darth Maul. Um, and it, it really, really does work. Matt, I, I would say it's wizard. <laughs> um indeed even even some of the uh the, the 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 words used there might not have aged well but i mean the race just fantastic and you know i i pete even in the last couple months i saw you know some special effects breakdown of it and the basic conclusion was even that has aged well um you know the, the special effects and and even with modern eyes and all of that a uh, ton of fun. You reference the digital characters. I think part of the reason that they work here, where maybe uh, Jar Jar and Watto a bit less so, maybe one factor is here the clownish digital characters are kind of in a bit of a vacuum. You know, cut to their pod, cut to the other pod, cut to the third mm. one, as opposed to, you know, Liam Neeson from Schindler's List now needs to interact with crazy Watto. You know, and that's not to say that Watto isn't. Uh, well, well animated. It's not to say that Liam Neeson can't act, but just that line of these two need to be on the same page, but one of them is there on the day and the other one is, 
has yet to be created versus go make funny potato bug guy who waves to everybody. <laughs> hey, he's a real waver. And then later on when he crashes, he's a real frowny guy. And that's kind of his existence. And Are you referring to Ben Quadraneros there? Because he, he remains a favorite. The one whose pod, you know, just misfires from the start. And then the the engines, you know, these these jet engines just go everywhere. But the, the sequence works because of its simplicity with the digital magic layered on top of it. And and let's not leave out Ben Burt's sound design, that every pod had a distinct noise and the thumping of Sebulba's. But this underdog story set piece with Anakin's freedom as a slave riding on it, uh, start to finish, is the most watchable sequence of the film. Yeah, and I think that I have a distinct memory of watching it the first time and having the feeling, oh no, he might actually lose, which is pretty extraordinary because as I think about it, there's maybe an echo of that sense each time I rewatch the movie now, even knowing he's going to win. Like the fact that it's so well constructed that you kind of on a certain level buy it each time that he might lose, that he's so far back and things like that. It just speaks to how effective a scene it is. And then to have that followed up by, uh, in, in fairly short order, uh, the the brief yet savage attack by Darth Maul. Again, I kind of stick with uh, the shark from Jaws where it's like, oh, no, look, here he comes almost out of the blue. And he's barely off his bike chair thing. And they're, they're mid uh, lightsaber battle here as everyone's getting back in the ship and get her started up and whatnot. And it's just a reminder that Maul is able to cut through the action and be this really, really effective villain. Yeah, but it, it, it the, the fight as staged, there's, there's a lot of shots of blurry twisting around and sand blowing before it or as it's beginning. Uh, Qui-Gon is running ahead of Anakin. Wouldn't you stay with the child? Anakin is saying, sir, I'm tired. I'm tired. And then they get attacked by the shark from Jaws, uh, something that would be traumatizing. You know, I, I would have liked a little bit more of that towards the psyche of the character that would become Darth Vader. Instead, it's, nope, oh, you're Obi-Wan Kenobi? Pleased to meet you. Because Qui-Gon says, we're going to be patient about what just happened, as scary as it was. I know I've heard the argument that maybe the original sin of this trilogy is that it's about Anakin Skywalker and not about Obi-Wan Kenobi. And yes, we have an Obi-Wan Kenobi arc and growth and whatnot, but just the fact that it's not Obi-Wan Kenobi's journey and Anakin is the number two. Instead, it's kind of inverted. But in terms of what we've seen so far, we haven't seen much of Anakin yet. So when you get to anakin and obi-wan meeting you kind of need that forced moment because yikes in the shooting script we're already you know 45 pages into you know 130 gotta get a move on here um again i don't yeah i, I don't know i don't know if that if, if that makes for a better solution i know uh i i know pete the i'm gonna use a a, a naughty word in your word that's naughty to you this uh, machete cut that would have one exclude this movie entirely to go episode four, five, two, three, then six. Um, I guess in a certain level, it addresses that. I mean, there's good stuff in this movie. I just 
again in in some alternate world this is more about anakin uh, pardon me more about obi-wan and a little less about anakin but amidst you know a, a couple sequences we have farting creatures we have you know the blink and you miss her aura sing uh cameo um and well now fair and, is fair not not a cameo at the time at the time just a, a weirdo alien lady that went on to be more interesting right absolutely absolutely like maul i think you know the boba fetization of these types of iconic barely there but still making impact characters and then you know you're you're flying off to coruscant you're you're finally i say finally it's you know the the same decade as the the zon trilogy novels and you're uh you know making canonical the uh location of coruscant something you know just painted so filmically in those novels and to see it and the, the cgi i think holds up well um but never quite explored i think the way that we would have hoped well pete i know my first glimpse of coruscant uh was in uh monopoly star wars um that had it as as the boardwalk location um my recollection is it was a zillion years before phantom menace came out it probably was a year or two um bottom line being uh i i know that when we got there when we got to there in the story it was like oh man it looks like that one little square uh in monopoly which of course you know i'm sure it was i'm sure the, the picture in monopoly was taken from the uh production something something ahead of this movie because it probably was within two or three years of the movie coming out but you you saw it in the special editions as well they gave you you know the the shot of them toppling a, a statue that looked like the emperor okay this was test type of footage like you'd indicated before and uh you know something you'd pointed out to me that i did not know suddenly we've got chancellor valorum here ready to act alongside natalie portman who didn't make it to the set that day because hey we forgot to tell you no you're not acting with her you're gonna act with uh kira knightley yeah Unfortunately, the way things are scheduled, you're never going to act alongside this other actor in this film. We also get, of course, in that world of Coruscant, we have corrupt senators, corrupt courts, uh, the notion of this, this, uh, the, the imperfect Senate, Pete, barely able to get the job done, nay, negligent in its job, as we have seen uh, recently, that is to say, at the top of the movie. Um, and we also get the Jedi Temple as well, I suppose, for both for both the Senate and the Jedi Temple, worth mentioning that thought was put into how the buildings would appear so you could quickly look at the exterior and know where you're at. Yeah, and originally when the film was released, we had a Frank Oz puppet Yoda that didn't look quite like the Yoda we had before. It's since been replaced digitally. Uh, we still have Yaddle there, though, off to the side, believed maybe Yoda, Yaddle the child we're going to have to find out at some point. And then we've got the prophecy of the chosen one, the prophecy of balance and, and all of these politics and, you know, this movie and the next 
malign so much because it's really just a series of meetings. On top of that, you get, and, and this isn't necessarily a full criticism, but you get, for for the Republic, it's this parliamentarian system. So when there's all this talk of vote of no confidence and kind of the lack of branches of government, it's a little foreign to we Americans. That's not to say the entire Star Wars trilogy has to be American-centric, but perhaps a bit confusing, like, oh, we're all going to say we're not confident in you. What does that do? You know, whereas in other countries, that's that's, I suppose, as big a deal as it is in the movie. I mean, ultimately, the weight is shown in the movie. Uh, but there is that vote of no confidence. We see Chancellor Valorum shocked by the result of the vote. And Pete, maybe you didn't catch it on the first view, but on on the IMDb trivia section, did you see, keep an eye out for it when you see the movie the third or fourth time, did you see the ETs? Yeah, I, I saw them originally. And, you know, since the whole uh, discussion about well, wait a minute, E.T. knows Lando Calrissian. Of course he knows Lando Calrissian because he was in a galaxy far, far away, and it it, it works. Um, would like maybe them to return to it at, at some point, as perfect a movie as E.T. is. Um, but, you know, we're back at the Jedi Temple, and they're testing Anakin, and it's this idea that he is too old to undergo the training. We're never given a concrete age and it's never, ever explained throughout all of Star Wars to this point. When is the point you would want to get a child and, and start training them? Um, yet the force is stro so strong with him. And it really makes me question what was their plan if the force is so strong with him, if they're not going to train him, were they going to euthanize him? It, it seems like a dark train of thought. Thankfully, things don't go that way. And then there's, hey, Obi-Wan, you're ready for the trials. Oh, the trials? Yes, the trials. Oh, the trials that never, ever come up again as well. I think all of that, too, a bit of evidence that it's this weird mix that Lucas is willing to um, uh, commodify, for lack of a better word, commodify where the source comes from. Like it's, you know, midichlorians, it's these little things, da, da, da. But then to not explain exactly how the Jedi order works and to get this lack of structure for the Jedi, anything beyond to not get anything beyond, Hey, they're kind of arrogant and not recognizing their own fallibility at this point. It, it, it's a curious decision to make. So we're all going to return to Naboo because we need to have a big fight here at the end. There's some incongruous, scene cuts that just really, really don't work throughout the film, but particularly here. And then there's some overdubbing of conversations and some focusing in some different places. There's the practical question of where did the multi-starship blockade go? There's just one droid control ship that allows the uh, queen starship to just land and, uh, we form this alliance with the Gungans. So, you know, we're, we're closer to the beats of the originals here that we're, we're all going to come together and, you know, but for the greater good, fight it out. And I think by and large, this is uh, a multifaceted fight sequence that works. The Gungan army versus the droids, uh, you know, high spectacle, sometimes occasionally silly, but I think that when you have 
Gungans versus, you know, the the phase one battle droids, you can have a little silliness there. I refer to uh battle droid that gets caught on uh on Jar Jar's foot and he's stomping his foot and it's <laughs> the, the the busted up droid is shooting other droids and whatnot. I Roger, think- Roger, Matt. Roger, Roger, indeed. Pete, this is also a point where I, I see the whole movie, I see the movie the first time all the way through. Hey, no 1138 reference. Go on IMDb. <laughs> hear that there is one. See the movie. Don't, you know, don't remember it. Pete, it might have been the home video release where finally it was like, oh, that is a stylized 1138. Yeah, uh, by used, as I recall, in negative space uh, on the back of that one droid. Yes. Um, but you know, the, the, the big battle and again, a, a, a lesson in restraint, the, the digital trickery is, is great to look on. It was great at that time. Uh, you mix in that with the space battle that Anakin gets swept up in because he hides in a starfighter. Okay. That now produces, this is starfighting. Oh, it's, this is pod racing, Matt. That produces other memorable lines like spinning's a good trick and I'm trying to stop. I'm trying to stop. Uh, moments of imperfection to be sure. Uh, but if that's the kids table, uh, it's the it's the big boy table when we get the three way lightsaber duel. We get duel of the fates, which had been somehow that had been out there ahead of time. I don't quite recall whether it was. They released on it on MTV. Or... They they did a music video on MTV wow. two weeks, ten days before. Um, and you know the the choreography, the the staging throughout the sequence. You know, in the different areas from the hangar to the the place with the catwalks to the room with the hole. It it works despite again the you know why do you have a giant room? with a hole in it that somebody can be cut in half and later escape, but we've never been down the bottom of that hole. I mean, it's, it still works because it's amongst the best of this film. Particularly, I mean, even some of the stuff where in other movies, in other movies, it wouldn't work as well in terms of like, Oh look, the force fields have arbitrarily closed to give our fighters time to, uh, you know, time to rest, as well as to give the the fight room to breathe. Now they have opened, but they open sequentially. Obi Wan can't get there. Like it would be ridiculous in other movies, but because it's Star Wars, because it's fantasy sci fi, all of that works. Uh, we get, of course, Pete have, have to mention it again because it was a big deal back in 1999. Darth Maul cut in half not shown that way to critics. We're already seeing the special edition, Pete, the special (laughs) edition where he's cut in half. That was the theatrical, theatrical for us, uh, not shown to critics uh, where he's cut in half because he's truly, absolutely, positively dead. George Lucas will never change his mind and, uh, and a happy ending, or is it? Well, I mean, we always knew, given the Obi-Wan nature of Qui-Gon's character, that he wasn't long for the trilogy, but, when it's spoiled on the back of the soundtrack CD uh, that he dies, that they have a funeral for him. Um, and it does nothing to detract from John Williams, uh, you know, work, particularly the high highs of, of Duel of the Fates and the way that they incorporate the Imperial March into 
Anakin's theme. And even with the parade music, Matt, I don't know if you've done this. You listen to the parade music. It is a sped up cheery version of the Emperor's theme, which is just brilliant. Yes, it's actually only in the last month I saw a, a video that talked about that, that uh, that parade music is the major version. And then the, it, when put into the minor key, it is the the Emperor's theme, which is beyond brilliant. I can't believe I've existed 20 plus years not knowing that. Um, and I guess right before that parade, you know, in the funeral, there is kind of that lurking notion. There is that question, you know, who was killed? Uh, the apprentice or the master there's the shot of everybody at the funeral there's the shot of palpatine and you know both that and then in the, the big parade at the end with everybody standing up there you know uh, uh, award ceremony style though no award beyond the glowy ball of ball glowiness just this notion of oh man now i have to wait three more years for the next one yeah and i just remember my head swimming with the ideas in this film particularly Anakin's dream, right? I I dreamt I was a Jedi. I came back. I freed the slaves. I'm like, that's it, man. 2002. Can't wait to see that. He's going to go back and get his mom. You know, nobody can kill a Jedi. These ideas that, you know, occur to him in his naivete. And we know of correction based on the critics. Oh, they didn't like Jar Jar. What do they like? They like Boba Fett. Well, what if they get boba fett's not dad dad and all the other boba fett's i'm gonna give them all the clones i'll shut them up i'll give them what they want oh yeah this idea of freeing slaves it's never gonna happen well pete that a space tale for another time i guess as a as a conclusion to this before we truly start to wrap up uh, also, I'm assuming on the IMDb trivia section, Pete, I'm realizing that before social media, before Wikipedia, uh, the IMDb trivia section was where you got all the good stuff. Nowadays, some good stuff. It's it's also it, it itself is kind of a Mos Eisley or a Mos Espa in terms of might be true stuff, might be somebody snuck through that Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered for the role of blank, which is an ongoing. Uh, if you're not aware of it, Pete, it's an ongoing imdb meme that people try and sneak that in past the imdb people <laughs> that arnold schwarzenegger and sly stallone were up for every role possible um but at the very end of the movie if you wait all the way through uh you hear darth vader breathing at the end pete yeah. is this the is this the 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 original uh secret scene mcu secret scene that you sit all the way through for no, no, I, I just think it's a it's a cute thing. They they did it as well in the trailer and it, it's a through line throughout the advertisement. I mean, these prequels, there is one movie of story spread across three films as as they are presented. And, you know, unless Lucas ever speaks out or unless it's ever documented as to what happens will happened, we'll never know. Um, where things change, but there's very clearly a break point. You know, you want to talk about, well, it's mapped out for, for three pictures. What's mapped out. Then Anakin becomes Darth Vader. Apart from that, you know, that 99% of the clone wars occur off screen. Like, you know, if, if we knew that at the beginning of this trilogy, it'd be like, well, what's the point? Um, what we have, we have, it, it's imperfect. It's still star Wars. Um, this for me, the second best of the prequels, Revenge of the Sith being the best. 
I will be interested to go on this journey of rewatching them for the podcast to to see how I feel uh, how I feel they rank now. Uh, so I will maybe withhold judgment for the time being. Uh, but Pete, so so glad that we have been able to get together to talk about the Phantom Menace. And of course, all of this brought by the people who support us on Patreon.com. Indeed, Pete, this made as a Patreon uh, Patreon early window, early release uh, for those patrons. And we're so thankful for everybody who goes to Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek and even considers uh, contributing. Can't contribute this month or at all. You can always go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or a review. It is free. It takes seconds and uh, helps us nearly as much. Pete, all sorts of goodies on the Patreon website, but there's one that's always free that's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast, comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word, with the P, with the H, like it today. Well, Pete, can't wait to get together again to talk about Star Wars and other geeky goodness. With that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Now this is Pod Racing.